Welcome to the supporting cast. This is Eli Goldsmith. In the heart of San Francisco's Mission District sits a community gathering place called Manny's, where on any day one might find Kara Swisher interviewing a member of Congress, a Q&A with San Francisco's chief of police, or a gathering of gamers of color or meeting of the American Jewish Committee. All of this, the brainchild of the space's founder and namesake, Manny Yakutiel. In this episode, Manny tells his story, from growing up gay and closeted in a modern Orthodox home in the Pico-Robertson district, before obtaining a Harvard-Westlake brochure, applying to the school in secret, and then attending with the help of need-based financial aid. After a life-changing Harvard-Westlake experience, Manny was then elected student body president at Williams College, followed by a White House internship and Watson Fellowship, and then finally, San Francisco, where today, Manny owns and operates what has become the structural embodiment of his own political passions and curiosities. Manny Yakutiel on creating a space for community gathering that leads to civic and political change. This is The Supporting Cast. Sporting cast. It's good to be here. It's an honor. So first, to sort of ground the beginning of this conversation in the present, you've said you've had quite a day. Let's start by just talking about it. What has your day been like today? Oh my. I started my day at the gym, and then I had a 9 a.m. call with someone that I hired to run one of five citywide civic projects that I'm funding through a nonprofit that I started. This project is called Adopt a Block, where we take four blocks of San Francisco and we kind of, kind of come up with a whole renewal and revitalization plan and try to turn that block around. And the idea is if we can uh, demonstrate that this works on four blocks in the city, we can spread it around. And so I started this nonprofit to help with the city's economic recovery um, mm-hmm. and it's I guess it's now it's live because I haven't actually told anyone about it, but I'm telling you about it. Um, and then I was invited to participate in a press conference with the mayor, Mayor London Breed. We met at the permit center with a bunch of small business leaders around the city to talk about a, a new piece of legislation that she uh, is passing in order to uh, make it easier for small businesses to open. And uh, then I came back to the space and I had an hour long brainstorming session with my team at Manny's. And so we, we brainstormed for about 30 minutes and then collected our ideas to talk about upcoming programs we want to host in the space. And now I'm talking to you. Wow. So tell me about the first project. So the idea is you take a city block yeah, uh, and you think about how to beautify that block and then see if that can't be scaled in terms of the ideas that are put into place toward greater parts of the city. Am I understanding that right? You are. So I raised I raised some money for this, $500,000, and the idea is to take four blocks. I've hired a project lead, choose these blocks in economically depressed or blighted areas of the city, and find a block with a lot of potential, where there's some anchor businesses, a lot of cool things happening. But there's a set of things that, with a combination of money, attention, uh, and creative ideas, could potentially turn the story of that block around. So that's things like, Hiring a real estate agent to kind of fill the vacant storefronts, 
giving direct grants to the businesses to fix, you know, graffitied glass, broken glass, dirty awnings, uh, putting new tile out, fresh menus, a new paint job, paying for musicians to play on that block and activate it, power washing, street cleaning, street lights, uh, a marketing campaign, hanging planters. Like, how could you, like, really hug a block? And part of the idea, too, is to have different tech companies or, or businesses basically uh, San Francisco to each take on a block. And you could also have them tell their employees to take their happy hours there, host their birthday parties, do their after work events there. And so kind of investing directly into the small businesses. And so it's a really hyper, hyper local kind of surgical approach towards addressing some of the more blighted parts of San Francisco. And this comes in the context of, you know, when I think of San Francisco, you can correct me if I'm wrong, because you make San Francisco your home, is this idea that the pandemic hit San Francisco particularly hard because the tech industry, which is so prominent in San Francisco, not everyone works in the tech industry, but it's so prominent up there. The people who work in that industry who have a lot of resources ended up working from home, ended up in many cases relocating from San Francisco. And so that left the city, sort of the downtown area, a bit depleted coming out of COVID. Is that correct or, or correct me if I'm wrong? Yeah, I mean, depleted is a bit of a strong word. I think you okay. know, New Yorkers love to dance on the grave of San Francisco. And, and <laughs> fortunately or unfortunately, the paper of record in our country is in New York. And so that dancing has happened. There's been a lot of dancing over the last few months. But let's remember, San Francisco was the first major city to shut down, one of the last major cities to open up in the country. It's had some of the strictest COVID protocols of any major city in America which as a result has left us having one of the lowest fatality rates of any city in America over the last three years from COVID, which is something we're very proud about. But it's also a city that has unique vulnerabilities as uh, we think about some of the changes that have now looking to become permanent in a post-COVID era. Remote work, hybrid workforce, San Francisco's economy relies a lot more on international tourism, especially from Eastern Asia. And the conference business, our, our conference center is a huge driver of our economy, which is different than New York, more like Las Vegas. And so you combine that with, I wouldn't call it a mono economy, but certainly the driving force in our economy pre-pandemic was technology workers and how many tech workers are now working remotely, or at least working in a hybrid fashion. It is creating some major issues in our downtown. It certainly is not where we want it to be. Now, with that said, there is some sunshine. I mean, you look at companies like OpenAI, which pretty much every newspaper in America and in the world is writing about. OpenAI's office is three blocks from me in San huh. Francisco. You look at autonomous vehicles, Cruise, Waymo, Zoots. These are all companies which are like creating a revolution in how we're getting around. Guess where they're all based? Right here. Guess what's testing all their technology on the streets? Our city. So we have issues. We have you know a lot of things to worry about, but San Francisco's story is one of resilience. And so that gets to sort of Manny's. Uh, you know, you talked about your day working on a nonprofit that you helped to start, standing behind the mayor at an event and then meeting with your team to talk about what you're planning to do at Manny's. For those who don't know, I have been to Manny's, but for those who have not been there, what is Manny's? Manny's is a venue for civic and political life uh, in San Francisco. So it's a, it's a venue, it's, it's, a, it's an event space, it's a meeting space and community space where every night of the week we are hosting programs, ooh, programs uh, that deal with issues of politics, social justice, civic engagement. Uh, we also have a political bookstore and a coffee shop and bar and restaurant in the front. And so it's a very, it's not a new idea. It's basically taking this very old idea of a meeting place where people can eat and drink and, and discuss the issues of the day and learn. Um, this was kind of what our coffee houses originally 
what they were. They were places where people came and learned. The first coffee houses in London were called the Penny Universities because people would stand up on the table and they would teach uh, subjects from these original coffee houses. So it became clear to me after Trump got elected that there were a lot of people who wanted to get more involved and did not know how. I just was looking around me and lots of people were asking me and others because I had worked on the Clinton campaign, like, oh my God, what do I do? I want to get more involved. Like, I didn't, I went to the women's march. Now what? And it just was strange to me. I'm like, if you wanted to watch the Warriors game, or I guess in your case, the Lakers game, hmm. like you would know, you could name a place right now, like within a few blocks of your home where you could probably do that. If you wanted to work out your muscles and get stronger, which I don't think you really need to do, Eli. Um, but you know, for maybe other people who are listening, you could probably tell me where the nearest gym is to your house. But if you wanted to watch the presidential debate, if you wanted to meet your local elected official, if you wanted to meet with other neighbors and pick up trash, like where would you go? And so this idea of a civic gathering space, to me, it just seems strange that this didn't already exist. And in a city as civically engaged, at least presumably as San Francisco, I thought it, maybe I could build it here. Maybe it would work. And so far, five years later, I can tell you it works and it definitely has uh, worked. And it, it even, it, I mean, the issue is really just slowing down and trying to take stock of all the things we've been able to do over the last five years. It's been quite a journey. Yeah. And I want to get to, you talk about neighborhood people, citizens getting together and discussing. You've also had some pretty incredible guests that have visited the venue and engaged people in conversations. I want to get to who some of those people are, but was there a moment, you said it's been about five years, was there a moment um, you had this vision, there's so much that goes into actually building something like this out, and the details of which would probably take us hours to get through. Was there a moment when you felt like, wow, I feel like this is working. I feel like this is what I envisioned or a version of what I imagined. Not to sound too polished in my answer, but I will tell you from the very first night, I have felt that. Like really? when oh, absolutely. I was I don't know what the hell I was doing. You know, <laughs> I had a hunch. And I you know, pieced the whole thing together, literally built the furniture, and I was not sure if anyone would actually want to show up to these kinds of programs. I'm like, I like to go to these things, but maybe no one will show up. And on, we opened on election night in 2018. And 500 people showed up. We had a line around the block. People were hanging through the rafters. It was electric. And I did not know any of these people. But they had heard that there was a place to watch the election results. And mm. I looked around me at all these strangers, you know, sitting on couches and drinking wine out of teacups because we ran out of wine glasses, holding each other, laughing, crying, scared, worried, news cameras, watching their reactions. And I immediately realized that, yeah, actually people do want spaces, physical spaces in their neighborhood to engage in what's happening in the world, to actually be together for these moments. Um, and since then, I have been nervous about every single event that we host. I still get nervous. Does anyone show up? Does anyone actually care about this thing? And time and time again, my nerves are proven wrong. This Sunday afternoon at two o'clock in the afternoon, we had 200 people in the back space. You couldn't even get in. It was standing room only listening to Kara Swisher interview Congresswoman Katie Porter, who's running for Senate, talk mm -hmm. about bank regulations, talking about reigning in big tech and talking about why she's running for Senate. Like, I think that's interesting, but it was a Sunday afternoon and you sold out and you couldn't get in. So uh, I don't think it necessarily is because I'm so special or the space is so special or we have some magic, though I think we got a little bit of magic. 
Yeah. I think it's just because I think the truth is, is that people want to gather for these things. They want to learn. Learning is so empowering at a time where there's so many things happening around us that really are confusing and it can be very scary and disempowering. And so the hunch was right. And it was, I, it, I was proven correct in the very first instance. Well, it's ironic we started this conversation by talking about remote work and sort of fleeing from physical spaces when you talk about the importance of people actually gathering together physically. I'm curious about during the pandemic, you created a space where the purpose is for people to be in a room together, as you said, watching election results, hearing from a Senate candidate together, feeling the power of people in a room together. How was that impacted during the pandemic? How did you survive? It was very hard. We made an immediate pivot to online events. We did about 200 in the first six months. Um, we did like two or three a day at some, at, in the beginning stages of it. And that worked for a bit. And then we did a bunch of outdoor events. We did events in parks and we did events in parking lots. And wow. we turned the three parking spaces in front of Manny's into an outdoor campaign office, basically for the 2020 election. We turned them into booths. We called them victory booths. We had people make phone calls and write letters and do text banking to swing state voters uh, around the country. And so and we, we said we made millions of phone calls and millions of texts and wrote 25,000 letters to swing state voters in places like Georgia and Pennsylvania to turn the tides of the election. Uh, and then we did more outdoor events and then we went back to indoor masked and then indoor unmasked. And so just like San Francisco, Manny's is resilient. And so we every time we could do something, we did. It was a very hard three years. I have a lot less hair now and I look a lot, I look aged more than I, and sometimes I look back to like videos of like pre-pandemic or right during the pandemic and I'm like, I look more than three years older than that man. I look, something has happened to me. Yeah, I think that's all of us. <laughs> but it also strengthened us. Um, you know, we don't do Zoom anymore for our events. We don't have a digital option. We're back to fully in person. That was very much a like conscious decision of like, you know, the pandemic is not over, but the restrictions are over. And I actually think that the pandemic made the value of spaces like my own even greater because now we really appreciate and thirst for gathering in a way that I think we forgot how special it was to be in a room with other people and, and be together before the pandemic. And I think the pandemic has only made it seem more precious. And we're seeing a major rush back to our events. Our events are, you know, are doing better than ever. People are, more people are showing up than ever before and more diverse crowds. And can you talk about the different types of groups that come to gather at Manny's and the diversity of issues also that are discussed at Manny's? Oh my God, it is. I mean, yes, yesterday is a great example. We had an all day event for gamers of color. And so it was black, Asian and Latinx gamers and game developers all meeting together and learning from each other. That was lunch into the afternoon hour. And then it moved to an event with the American Jewish Committee, which is an American Jewish advocacy group that fights anti-Semitism, works on Israel issues, uh, that had a social and a meet and greet and a panel on kind of the state of anti-Semitism in America, followed immediately by a queer burners meetup. So LGBT burners, which is like people who go to Burning Man and associated camps all had a social together where they met each other. And, uh, and that was all in one day. Tonight we have a fundraiser. Wow to welcome refugees in the space after a, uh, a political panel uh, we had on Tuesday night. I moderated a conversation with our chief of police on the state of policing and public safety in San Francisco. And so the premise of the space and the premise of our programming, you have to meet people where they're at. 
Do you ever come across the issue? We find this actually at Harvard Westlake sometimes, which is too bad, where the school will have a focus on a particular issue. Let's say it's you know two communities that I know you care a lot about, the Jewish community, the LGBT community. We focus on, let's say anti-Semitism is, is highly important. It's highly important all the time, but let's say an incident happens and we're highly focused on that. Sometimes there are other groups that wonder, well, why aren't we focusing on this other thing? Why is that taking up all the space when this other issue is just as important? And I often lament this because I, I feel like so much of intolerance comes from the same place, even though it's not identical. Uh, and so I wonder how you handle that if you do, or is the solution just to have as much diversity of programming as possible? Uh, I think it is okay to follow the trends. I don't see myself in the purpose of the space that I run or any kind of civic and community space to necessarily be trying to tell people what they should care about. Because the truth is, is then you're in the business of like choosing between, you know, the war in Yemen, famine, you know, in one country, genocide in another, gun control versus, you know, reproductive rights. You know what I mean? I think the purpose of a space like Manny's or other civic spaces is a convening space when things are happening, when there's, there are moments that folks are coalescing around and to try to give people the information they need to be informed and involved. I mean, sometimes there's an issue that will touch me directly and I'll take advantage of the fact that I own a space like Manny's to try to get people to focus on something. For instance, I've gotten involved in what's called the Rainbow Railroad, which is helping LGBT Afghans who are still living in Afghanistan, who are basically being like rounded up and hunted down by the Taliban to get out of Afghanistan and get the help that they need by buying passports and visas and getting them safe passage out of Afghanistan. We're going to host a fundraiser and a panel with asylum seekers that have made it to San Francisco. Now, is that an issue that's being written about by the New York Times right now? No. But we fold that into the, you know, all the programming and all the events that are being written about. And, you know, so it's a smattering of things, but I think it's okay for institutions to not pretend that they can attach themselves to every issue. It's just impossible. So in the wake of George Floyd, obviously there were institutions like Harvard-Westlake that developed anti-racism plans uh, in the wake of, let's say, an anti-Semitic incident on campus to have a focus around Jewish issues and anti-Semitism. It's okay for institutions like Harvard-Westlake, in your view, to be reactive to those at the time, even when in that moment it might seem that one is getting higher focus than the other. I think it's realistic. I think when it comes to like people gotching or pointing fingers as to what institutions or individuals should be doing as it relates to social justice, it just gets really tiresome because it's unending. So I just feel like it's okay for institutions that want to make the world a better place, which educational and civic institutions do, to react to things that are happening in the world around them. I think we can strive to also be doing that long-term strategic thinking and that strategic work to make the world more equitable, to address the kind of world that we've inherited. But I think it's also, I think we need to be more merciful mm. when someone's just trying to do the right thing, right. Uh, which I have found diving in a one-piece 1920s swimsuit, synchronized swimming into the pool of San Francisco politics <laughs> and all that comes with it. I have had my share of like eyebrow raising moments from like, you're going to fight against that person when there's like a third person that actually wants to do harm to you. And so I think we all just need to be more, more merciful to each other. 
It's like that picture I painted there, the 1920s. I like that. I, I it was vivid. I had like a cap on <laughs> the swim stripes. Cap. You saw it. Okay, good. So lastly, before we get to you and your story, Manny, um, something I admire about you is that in addition to fostering a space for conversation, which is important, but you're someone who I believe serves on the transportation board, for example, yes. in San Francisco. Can you talk about how important it is not just to have conversations about national politics and presidential elections, which all of us are having with our spouses and our friends all the time, but actually to get involved in things that aren't as on the surface sexy as a presidential campaign, but something like the transportation board in a city like San Francisco? Yeah, well, first of all, and this is no surprise to you, I do think that conversations can have a real impact sure. um, and learning can have a real impact on uh, the world around us. Politics is local. We remember this. Uh, last week, we hosted an event called the Future of Bay Area Public Transit. There were about 200 people in the room. I brought the three women that run the, lo the, that run the local transit agencies in the Bay. And those 200 people were affected by that conversation. And I challenged them as they were leaving to think like, can you take the bus more? Can you take Muni more? Talk to your friends about supporting and voting for bills that are gonna be on your ballot to increase public funding and public transportation. And maybe half of those people, which is 100 people, changes the way they act, the way they talk. Maybe they have conversations with their friends about it. And those friends have conversations with their friends about it. And so it's not a silver bullet, but this idea that that like it's there's no point in engaging in discourse and conversations about the issues of the day, I think it is foolish because conversation it's the spark that lights up action. Hmm. In terms of like, I get I feel like people reach out to me and others all the time about I want to get more involved. What do I do? I want to raise my hand. And the truth is, is that there's lots of organizations in our communities that need more people, more bodies to raise their hand and take part merchants associations, neighborhood groups, and civic organizations. I mean, there's a lot of different organizations. And so there really is no excuse. I mean, if you're interested in an issue, there's probably an organization, whether it's conservation, whether it's a local chapter of an advocacy group that you care about, whether it's LGBT rights, or women's rights, or gun control, that, you know, power in numbers. I did not seek to be on the SFMTA board, our, our transit system. But I was on the Small Business Commission, and I did want to be on that commission, and I, I felt my work there was very purposeful. I was one of seven people representing the needs of small businesses to the city government. And I served on that, It's including on the first year of the pandemic, when small businesses were facing a once-in-a-century crisis. Because of the work on the Small Business Commission, the mayor basically promoted me to be on the transport board uh, to represent, for, among other things, kind of the perspective of small business and economic interests and people who have employees, you know, you need to get to and from work on the bus. And so yeah. part of service is exactly that. It's serving. It's doing what is being asked of you, giving your time, which is a most valuable asset to causes that matter. Well, now I want to get to you, Manny. Uh, you are a Harvard Westlake alum, of course. Tell me about your family before getting to Harvard Westlake and the type of family that you grew up in here in L.A. Yeah, I grew up on the west side in the Pico-Robertson area. My father's from Afghanistan, come from a small business family. My father opened up a restaurant when he came to Canada on a boat in the 80s, early 80s or 70s, I think. My mother's from Brooklyn. Her parents owned a grocery store in Flatbush in Brooklyn. They met in L.A. Both uh, They were not super religious when they met, but became, they became more religious when they got married and when they had us. And so I was brought up modern Orthodox, went to a yeshiva and then transferred out of yeshiva in ninth grade and was one of the very, very few transfer students to come to the upper school in 10th grade. I think there were 10 of us 
that year, all of whom were either geniuses or professional athletes, except for me. I was the like <laughs> one person that everyone looked around and was like, what is he doing? He is not inventing chemistry solutions or like going to be in the NBA. <laughs> What's he doing here? But somehow Portia Collins got me in and vouched for me. And uh, I, I left a very insulated, but not a hateful or uh, harmful environment. It just was small. Right? I lived mm-hmm. in this big city in LA. I knew I was gay. I knew I wanted a better education. I wanted more out of my life. And I, I had seen one person get a pamphlet for Harvard Westlake in yeshiva. And I like stole the pamphlet and I had it under my bed. I had this whole vision in my mind of what this place, Harvard Westlake, could be like. And, I, and the reason I applied there is because I wanted to find, I wanted to, I wanted to learn. Like I wanted a place where learning was vaulted where it was a, a it was it was a temple to learning. And Harvard Westlake, I don't know, must have been just the pamphlet. It just really seemed to me like that kind of place. And so I applied practically in secret. I couldn't tell anyone at the yeshiva and I got in by some stroke miracle and Harvard Westlake accepted me. And it changed my life. Wow. How did it change your life? I mean everything that I was able to do in my life started with that decision to let me in because I would not have been exposed. I mean I wouldn't have met my college counselor, Tamara Degbalade, who vouched for me to go to a small liberal arts college. And I would probably wouldn't have gotten into Williams College if it weren't for Harvard Westlake and the mentorship of people like Headmaster Hudnut. And then Williams, you know, people like the director of fellowships, Katja King, telling me that I should apply for the White House internship and, t- and like pushing me to do it when I never thought that I would be able to get into something like the White House internship. And then again, stroke of luck, getting the White House internship, going from graduating Williams on a Sunday to being in the West Wing on Monday morning, briefing President Obama in the Oval Office on a Thursday, and then going from the White House internship to the Watson Fellowship, where I traveled the world for a year and studied LGBT rights in six countries, which then got me into the Obama campaign in Northwestern Massachusetts. And it was through my White House bosses, lesbian friends, wife's property managers, tenants, friends, friend in San Francisco, where I had moved <laughs> after the Obama campaign that I got the job at Forward.us uh, to help the CEO build this political advocacy group with Mark Zuckerberg to raise $50 million for immigration reform. And it was because of that job that Secretary Clinton's campaign decided to hire me to be her finance director in Northern California and represent her to the community out here when she was running for president. And if it wasn't for that, I would not have had the contacts, the relationships, or the gusto to build a political and civic gathering space in my hometown, which has been my my life's work for the last five, six years. So you see, it all comes back to that one interview, that one fateful afternoon, that one Saturday afternoon that I had to walk all the way to Harvard Westlake to ask them to please consider me to get this education. If it were not for that, if it were not for the financial aid that I got, the scholarships, the tutelage, the mentorship, the belief that I was bigger than, than who I thought I was, the belief that I could accomplish things that I didn't even think were possible. If it wasn't for that, I wouldn't be in this glittery office that I'm in today in the business that has my name. It's really started with Portia Collins in that interview at Harvard Westlake. I mean, you just ran through your entire life since the 10th grade, basically, or actually ninth grade when you applied. And it all started there. I remember it. I remember it vividly every moment. I walked, I was so presumptuous. I walked in a Seaver. And I walked past the front desk and I walked into the back room and there was a fireplace. And I walked past the fireplace into this sunlit office and Portia Collins was sitting there in her chair. And I sat down across from her and I told her that I was, I felt stuck where I was and that I had this thirst and this hunger, just like I told you. 
that I wanted to learn more. I wanted to be more. I wanted a bigger world than what I saw around me. And I, this is what I did. Can you believe this? I stood up in the meeting and I repeated the school motto in Latin, Pasent qui passi videntia. They can because they think they can. And I said, this is about me. I believe that I can. I can because I think I can. And I think Harvard Wessick will help me get there. And I think she probably was just like, who is this kid? <laughs> and um, yeah, she saw something in me. So it's because of her. I would say it's because of her and it's because of the financial aid office. Because if it weren't for them, I wouldn't have been able to go. Yeah. And all the donors who, who donate to the financial aid office, frankly. And you mentioned you mentioned Tamar Degbele, you mentioned Tom Hudnut. How did the people there, once you were there, I work with Portia, so I know how special and amazing Portia is. Once you got to the school, to the upper school, you had these people around you. How did they make you feel like you could do anything, that you could do anything that you thought you could do? Okay, so take, take I call him HH, Headmaster Hudnut. Take Tom Hudnut, for instance. Yeah. This is a man, can you imagine meeting him as a ninth, a 10th grader, as a 15 or 14 year old? He was like out of Dead Poet Society, out of like a <laughs> Hollywood movie. This man yeah. is like central casting for like stagely, wizardly. He's like, he's, he was like Dumbledore. And I, again, presumptuous little me, I walk into his office within the first week. I ask if I can meet him as a new 10th grade. I'm like, can I please meet Emery Whitman was this was the woman working the front desk, and she was like, "Let me see if he'll he'll meet you." And she knocked on his door, and she said, "Okay." I met him. I sat down, and I and he turned around his chair, and you know, I was shaking, I was nervous, and I was like, "I would like to meet you. I am a transfer student. My name is Emmanuel Gutiel, and I think you're really wonderful, and I'd like to meet the headmaster." And he, I was like, "Well, okay, young man, turn around there." And I said, "Okay." He's like, "Pick a book from my bookshelf." I said, "Okay," and I picked a book. He's like, "I want you to read that book, and I want you to." come back in a few weeks and I want you to tell me about it and let's talk about it. I think maybe he had been asked by the New York times to write a review for it, or he had knew the author and it was Adam Gopnik's from Paris to the moon, uh, who's a New Yorker writer. And it was about this American family, I think who moves from New York to Paris. And he and I engaged in a, in an actual intellectual conversation about this book. I read it and I came back to his office. And so in that moment, having the person who was the leader of this institution be interested in my opinion about a book, which I'm sure he like, he didn't need me to talk to him about the book, but it made me feel special. And so much of education, I think, is about having kids believe that they have a potential, that there's something worth, that their mind is worth. And to have him look at me and say, I want you to read that book and tell me about it. I was like, wow, Headmaster Hudnut actually cares how my mind works? He thinks that I'm smart enough to read a book on his bookshelf? So that was, that was about intellectual potential, making me believe that I had it. Dina Degbele created a safe space for me. She created a cocoon for me, which, you know, the ages 14 to 18, there's a lot of danger outside the gates of an institution and inside. You know, I was closeted. I was trying to figure out what kind of man I wanted to be, what my relationship with myself and my identity was. And, you know, I didn't know it at the time, but I'm sure she saw that in me. And she treated me like a surrogate mother. Like I felt when I would walk into her office with its soft glowing incandescent yellow light and beautiful <laughs> pictures and statuettes and the leather couch. It was like walking into um, like a womb, you know, it was like she took care of me. And when she told me where I should go to school, I, she, I felt like she really knew me. She really knew, she knew about my heart. Um, 
and I don't know how you reproduce that. You know, it's it. You can't teach that in a math classroom. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm curious about the you know coming out at Harvard Westlake as well, and and were there complicated? I mean, it's always complicated for for students to come out, but particularly coming from an Orthodox Jewish community, did that make it more difficult? I didn't come out in high school. There were so few ah. people who were out at the time. And there were only like two or three people that were out when I was there. I see. And so I came out right afterwards. I wouldn't say it was a inhospitable environment. I don't recall there ever really being any homophobia on campus. I just wasn't ready, partly because it was my expectation that if I were to, if my family were to find out, I would have, you know, I might have gotten kicked out of the house or disowned. And, you know, I wanted to get into college and get a scholarship and be able to, uh, you know, be on the road to independence before that might happen. So it was kind of a survival tactic for me. And why did Tamar think that Williams was the right place and was it? She thought it was the right place because she got the sense that I would want to be a big fish in a small pond, which was, I guess, true. I ended up, you know, becoming student body president and... yeah getting super involved in campus life, as maybe you could imagine. Mm -hmm. I was a very, very involved student. And I was in Harvard Westlake too. I was voted most outgoing my senior year. <laughs> that was my superlative. And so I think she just saw that that would be the kind of leadership, the potential for leadership training at a small liberal arts college would benefit me more than, you know, going to uh, maybe an institution that was larger with a lot of other leaders than where you know, it might be a little fancier sounding, but I wouldn't have had as many like actual opportunities to lead. And she had gone to Vassar. And so she was just an evangelizer for small liberal arts colleges. Now, with that said, I got a very special Harvard Westlake internship the summer of my junior year, which no longer exists, where we lived on a farm in rural Virginia, in Gordonsville, Virginia. And we did archaeology during the day, led docent tours in James Madison's house in Montpelier in the afternoons, and then took courses uh, on American political history in the evenings at the Woodbury Forest School. And on the weekends, we went on tours of presidential homes. I don't know why you guys don't still do this, because it was honestly transformative. Wow. But that, that gave me a free ticket to Virginia. And then I went on a tour of colleges, 23 schools that summer. And one of the school that I fell in love with most was Williams when I visited the campus. So part of it, too, is just like I fell in love with the very beautiful campus. And I'll say, when I got there, I wasn't very happy because, you know, it was just such a culture shock being like an Angelino from this giant city and going to this tiny town. And, you know, I did come out and there were a, a very few gay people there. And so it felt kind of like, I'm here, I'm ready, let's go. And it was like, nothing. You know what I mean? It was like, <laughs> oh no, I went to a tiny school, but there's no one. Um, so that was tough. That was hard. I spent a lot of time on the Peter Pan bus going to other schools. But, you know, here's why it did work. I got an, an email last week from a professor I took one class from freshman year, Leadership 101, who's been following my career and is on my mailing list. A long email about how impressed he's been with how I've grown and the things that I'm doing and, you know, that he's here for me and if, you ever need, if I ever need anything. And just kind of like really checking him out, a lot, like really like an email, you know, an email that you'd get from an old professor. I graduated in 2011. That's 12 years ago. And I took his class like for 15 years ago. I don't know what kind of school has professors were that involved in the lives of their students, especially students that haven't been with them for so long. So, you know, it's a very special institution in that way. And I feel very lucky to have gone there. I'm curious about the decision to come out when you got to college and the reaction of your family back in LA. Well, I had realized 
when I got to Williams that I had the opportunity to reinvent myself because I was in a school that was very isolated. I, you know, it was, it was before kind of instantaneous social media. So you could still have a life and not expect everyone to know about it. And I got there and I got it. I, I wasn't still sure I was going to come out. And then I got into my, I met my roommate, a man named Logan, who was an Irish Catholic son of a coal miner from rural Pennsylvania on the football team who happened to be my roommate, which was fine. Just, very different than me. And day two, I walk into the room and he goes, so you're gay, right? And I'm like, yeah, I'm gay. And he's like, okay, cool. Fine by me. And so I was kind of like, all right, well, it's probably no use pretending because clearly I don't even have to come out and my roommate knows. And then <laughs> freshman fall, Williams has this tradition called story time. So every Sunday, the school gathers together, the student union, the student kind of center, and one person is chosen from the Williams community to tell their life story. Sometimes it's staff, sometimes it's teachers, sometimes it's the president of the school, sometimes it's a student. And for some reason, and I still don't know who nominated me or why, but I was chosen to tell my life story after just being at Williams for like a month. Now, normally for story time, they just kind of like put a couple posters up and they get a couple hundred people. But this time they decided to try a new form of advertisement. They painted a giant white bed sheet and they hung it up in the student hall. Big, giant, 20-foot banner. Storytime Sunday, Manny Acutiel. So this time we had like 600 people show up, all there. And I got there, and I had to sit on a – and there's no interview. They just turn on the microphone. They ring a chime. You get 30 minutes to tell your life story. And so I decided, well, you know what? I might as well just come out here because then I won't have, it'll save me time. And so I came out in front of the entire school basically uh, all at once. Wow. Coming out in the way you did to the community, you know, telling your life story and having it come out that way. Do you feel like there's a direct line from that moment to you being elected student body president? Were there a group of people that felt like they knew you from that moment on and that relationship then just got broader and deeper as you got to know the university? Or is it something else? Um, I'd say the path that really led me there was there was a racist incident not that long after that story time on campus where someone wrote some racist profanity on another person's door, kind of lit up this student protest movement. There was a giant march on campus. People took over the student center and spent all night kind of planning. And I had, uh, I was on the college council at that point as a, I represented my dorm dormitory uh, on the college council, the student government. And I just was electrified by the presidents at the time, Morgan Goodwin and Kimberly Dakers and their leadership and how they rose to the occasion and it, it, it just got me excited to see how gathering together purposefully can result in changing institutions if done properly and with enough accountability and effort. And so I'd say that incident uh, and the ensuing kind of changes to the campus and the leadership of the student government at the time, really, the mentorship of those two people uh, got me more in interested in being involved. And did that movement, is there a direct line from that movement to the creation of Manny's? Well, I think insofar as I believe in the power of politics, right? I think the, na the nature of like creating a space for gathering around politics and civic life, I have to be optimistic at, at, as to the future of politics, right? I have to believe that there's a reason. Because if I was like, hey, you know, who cares? Watch the debate, don't watch the debate. Vote, don't vote. You know, meet your local officials, who cares? They're all corrupt. What's the point? Then like I wouldn't be in the business that I'm in now. But like, I do fundamentally believe, and I think that belief was instilled in, into me at Williams, that people caring 
and people paying attention matters and can do things. So yes, yeah, I definitely think there's an effect or through life. Is there a mentor that you can think about sort of in the city of San Francisco? You, you gave a great summary of how the interview with Portia Collins at Harvard Westlake sort of led from one thing to another, to another, to another, to eventually you uh, starting Manny's in San Francisco. Is there someone in the city, someone in political life or civic life that you can point to? I, I imagine there are many, but is there one that you can speak about that was a mentor for you? Yeah. Um, I would say the person that comes, there's a lot. And I told you this in our little pre-Kiki that it's, it would be hard for me to answer this because I do feel like a whole village of people has kind of risen around me to support me and, and teach me and, and hold me uh, in this town. I feel very taken care of by, I was at, like I said, I was at a press conference with the mayor this morning. The mayor was pointing to me and using me as an example. And so it's just like, wow, mayor wow. San Francisco is pointing to me as an example of what you can do. And it's like, how, how lucky am I? But I would say my, my city council person is, is a man named Raphael Mandelman. And I've got, I've known him for 10 years. And so he represents district eight, which is Harvey Milk's district, mm. the Castro, Nori Valley, kind of the traditional gay area of San Francisco. And Rafi and I go on a walk every Tuesday morning. It was a tradition we started at the beginning of the pandemic. Every Tuesday at about six in the morning before anyone else has woken up, it's usually dark. Rafi and I will walk around the district, we'll walk around the neighborhood. We'll talk, we'll argue, we'll spar about how the city should be addressing homelessness and the role of the police in, in the city's public safety, why the light around Dolores Park keeps twinkling on and off and hasn't been fixed yet by the power company. You know, we'll get into it. We'll also talk about the future of politics and our, and our involvement and what we should do and, and, you know, is it all worth it? And talk about love and life. And, and so to have someone who is doing the work every day in conversation with me about what's happening in our district and also just what's happening in the world has provided me just such a beautiful feeling of mentorship from him because I think that's the ideal mentorship relationship. It's mutually beneficial and it's also built on respect and understanding. So I'd say my local city councilman, Rafael Mandelman, who's an amazing man. To finish up, we have a few standard questions as part of the supporting cast. They relate to Los Angeles, where you grew up and went to high school. We are known for our movies, for our food, and for our climate. So what is Manny Yakutiel's favorite movie? Can I do it by genre? Sure. Okay, so my favorite sci-fi movie would probably be The Fifth Element. My favorite musical would be Calamity Jane. My favorite romance movie would be Sex and Mrs. X, which is a Lifetime movie that was very, very good. I would say my favorite animated movie would probably be Fern Gully. My favorite sad movie would probably be Steel Magnolias. And my favorite Julia Roberts movie would probably be Notting Hill. What's your favorite meal in LA? It could be at a restaurant. It could be something you, your family made at home. Well, my favorite meal in LA, actually, I have a story about this. So one of the only people that I've kept in touch with since I graduated is a woman because she's a woman now, that I met in 10th grade in Chinese. Uh, I took Chinese at Harvard West. Her name is Kendall O'Connor. So I met her when she was 14, and we had a tradition at Harvard Westlake. And any time after we graduated, when we were both in town, we'd go to Bodhi Tree Bookstore. Bodhi Tree, I think it's, it's near campus, if it's still there. And we would have like a four to six hour long lunch going into dinner there. And we would take 
this time at this place to really just catch up with each other and understand each other. And I think I always got uh, a veggie burger of some kind with French fries. It was always really, really good. The food was good and the place was good, but really it was the conversation and the, it, it held this resonance for us. It was this ritual to go to Bodhi, Bodhi Tree Bookstore, I think that's what it was called, and have this amazing long French, it was curly fries with a ranch and a, and a veggie burger. And I came out to her at that restaurant. She asked me to be the officiant of her wedding at that restaurant. And I actually wow. officiated her wedding to Josh, her husband. So it's, it's the place, it's the food, but it's also the memory associated with it. Wow. What's your favorite place in LA? Could be a part of town, could be a street. The top of Temescal Canyon mm. at sunrise. I had some fun memories kind of doing a pre-sunrise hike up to Mescal when I was in on campus to kind of like greet the day. I will say that my favorite place on campus, that wasn't your question, but I'm going to answer it anyway, is the plaque next to the chapel that about picking more daisies. So there's this plaque outside the chapel near Feldmanhorn where there's a bunch of Harvard boys put out this plaque about the importance of being in the moment, of staying present. And every time I go to campus, I read it as a reminder. So lastly, I am the parent of two little girls. I have a four-year-old and a one-and-a-half-year-old. And the last question I always ask every guest is about parenting advice. Now, I know you're not a parent, but I'm curious, given your experience, uh, you had a different type of upbringing, obviously in Los Angeles and then coming to Harvard-Westlake. Is there something that you think about when you think about your upbringing that could be instructive to me as a new dad and trying to raise two little girls? I spent a lot of, and, and I think this is a challenge much more for, for modern parents than it was for when you or I grew up. You know, I spent a lot of time outdoors and away from screens. I mean, it was easy because there weren't a lot of screens around. Yeah. But I just fundamentally believe that the more time we spend outdoors and the more time we spend away from screens, the healthier we'll be, the better it is for who we are and our development as human beings. And so, like, I see a lot of parents these days, like, using iPads as like a way to parent or like to shut their kid up. Yeah. And I just feel like if we can find a way to get our kids outside more and use that as a way to entertain them, as opposed to like technology, I think it would be to everyone's best interest. So we need to get outdoors, but if we're going to be indoors, we should be in communal spaces, engaging uh, with our <laughs> civic and political leaders in life. Come to Manny's. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Manny Yakutiel, thank you so much for joining the supporting cast. I really appreciate it. What an honor to be part of a conversation about a place that I, I love and a place that I have so much gratitude for. So thank you, Harvard Westlake, for making me the man I am today. And thank you, Eli, for making time to talk to me today. We're proud of you. Thanks, Manny. 